Welcome to The Collector's Show, where you'll learn insider secrets about collecting everything, best places to buy, how to judge authenticity, and what are the collectibles of the next generation. Here's your host, Harold Nickel. Well, hello, greetings, and welcome. Welcome to The Collector's Show here on Web Talk Radio with me, Harold Nickel. Glad you're here. Another week of collectible fun and a discussion during the interview segment about a bunch of dummies and you'll find out what that's about in the interview segment first we're going to do the news and week in and week out the news seems to be the thing that attracts the most attention and generates the most conversation and i'm pretty sure this week will be no different we've talked a lot on the show about the need to track or insure or lock up, keep safe your collectibles. And this first story is a reminder about how important that is. A man in Westfield, Massachusetts, was found guilty of breaking into a home just last December and stealing $2,000 worth of collectible coins. His name was Charles Mazarell. He's 46 years old. He was convicted of breaking and entering during the nighttime, which I guess in Massachusetts is different than breaking and entering during the day. It's considered a felony and a larceny in excess of $250. He got nine months in the Westfield District Jail. That seems kind of light, but maybe that's just me. He and an unnamed accomplice broke into the house on December the 18th, they got in by taking the air conditioning, one of those window units, out of a window and then climbing on through. And he admitted that he stole the collectible coins along with some other items, which he returned and he was arrested without further incident. I hope they got their coins back. It doesn't say. Speaking of coins, let's talk about another coin worth way more than two grand. A Beverly Hills rare coin dealer bought a 1792 American penny for $2.6 million. It was the most ever paid for a one-cent piece at an auction. It was named after the guy that engraved it, Robert Birch. It's called the Birch Cent, and it was among the very first pennies that were ever minted here in the United States, and they're part of a series of, I guess, prototype coins. And they think that there's only 10, 10 of these birch pennies. The man, Kevin Lipton, who was involved with the auction, said the coin is in the best condition of all 10. So I guess, reading that, they've got all 10, a dime's worth. Would you hate to uh, lose one in a in a soft drink machine? I think that would be... <laughs> <laughs> that would be terrible. Or find one in a in a parking meter. Um, one side of the birch scent has the profile of Lady Liberty with the motto, Liberty, Parent of Science and Industry. I have no idea what that means. And then the other side just says United States of America with the denomination one cent. The man who bought it said it was a gorgeous coin and he found it breathtaking. This was, like I said, the most anybody ever paid for a single one-cent piece. 
it broke the record that ironically was achieved the day prior when somebody spent 2.35 million for the 1793 chain scent which was named for the chains carved around the denomination so you know that expression find a penny pick it up well do that and maybe you can cash out like those guys did finally there was an auction of 1400 century old baseball cards with players like Cy Young and Ty Cobb and what was interesting about this auction was that it was from a single collection called the Portland Trove 212 baseball cards and a lot of them were the tobacco cards um, and you can tell a tobacco card because it's much smaller than the traditional baseball card the card that really got my attention really wasn't a card at all. It was um, like a print um, or a plate, printing plate. Um, oh, lordy, I've lost my place. Anyway, um, it was a printing plate of a baseball player that, that frankly, I had never heard of. Okay, here it is, script problem, Raylan Harford said it was a glass negative of T.B. Doran, who played third base for, get this, the Omaha Omahogs and the Omaha Lamb Chops <laughs> from 1887 to 1889. It was the most expensive thing auctioned at this event, going for just under $5,000. So if you are into really old baseball cards, you can cash out on those too. That's it for news. Now, before we go to the interview segment, I want to talk a little bit about an app that you can start using right now, an app for your smartphone. It's called Flea Market Finder. And if you're looking at the Web Talk Radio page that has the collector show on it, it's just there in the top right. Now, when you download that app, you're going to be able to locate the flea market closest to you. Why is that important to collectors? Well, I'll tell you. If you're out looking for that one item to finish your collection or a rare, hard-to-find item, a flea market is a pretty good place to start looking. And rather than having to go through the want ads or ask your friends, hey, where is a good flea market, this app is going to help you find it. All you got to do is put your zip code in and the number of miles you're interested in driving and it will find for you the flea market nearest you. You don't have to waste a lot of time looking through the Internet, looking for places to go buy things. You're just about guaranteed of finding a really, really good, reputable flea market. And like I say, for collectors, particularly those of us who don't have a lot of free time, you don't want to hassle with trying to find a good venue to buy your collectibles. The Flea Market Finder app is going to save you a lot of time and help you find collectibles for your personal collection and, hey, maybe even places to sell things. Who knows? But what I do know is that if you go up to that icon just there in the top right corner, click on it, download it, boom, you're in business with the Flea Market Finder app check them out, and hey, let me know if there's anything 
cool, interesting, rare that you find because of using the app. And, hey, I'll put you on the show. Okay, that's it for news. The interview segment is next here on Web Talk Radio with me, Harold Nickel, on The Collector's Show. Thanks for tuning in. Well, it's the interview segment of The Collector's Show. And, you know, a lot of times what I find and what we talk about here on the program are collections that are found inside museums. And after all, museums are just big buildings full of collections, and a lot of times those museums were started with the donation of a very large collection. We're going to explore that with our guest, Lisa Sweezy, who is the curator and director of the Vent Haven Museum, and she'll correct me later if this turns out to not be true, but I think vent is short for ventriloquism. It's the only museum of its kind, and it houses more than 800 figures, thousands of photos, playbills, letters, and a very large library of ventriloquist-related books, some of which date back to the 1700s, if you can believe that. In June of 1973, the Vent Haven Museum opened it opened to an enthusiastic public with the dedication of the W.S. Berger Memorial Building, and ventriloquist legends Edgar Bergen and Jimmy Nelson performed everybody there. Lisa, I got a lot of questions for you, and welcome to The Collector's Show. Thanks, Harold. I'm glad to be here. Now, I mentioned in the introduction that a lot of times collections start with individual collectors, and I think that's the case here. So tell us about William Shakespeare Berger. Sure. Uh, W.S. Berger was the founder of Vent Haven. He lived from 1878 to 1972, and he actively built this collection for about 50 years. He got his first dummy in 1910, but the collection grew very, very slowly the first 20 years or so. In 1947, he retired from his real job, which was um, at the at a company called the Cambridge Tile Manufacturing Company. Mm-hmm. And he retired from that in 1947. And at that point, the collection, he had maybe, I think, about 100 dummies at that point. And then it really became a full-time job for him for the remainder of his life. Um, the 1950s in particular were, in, were very busy um, because he was at that time uh, even publishing a monthly newsletter for the ventriloquial community. Now, it seems like the name, if, any, if you're named William Shakespeare, <laughs> that's, a lot to, that's a lot to live up to. And I wondered how he got that name, if his parents maybe wanted him to be a traditional stage actor and somehow he got derailed in his career. How did, how did he become interested in, in collecting ventriloquist dummies? Well, he did come from um, an actor. His father, Gaza Berger, was a, um, a stage actor and did Shakespeare acting. And that's how he got the bard's name. But he was not a performer himself. He was not a professional ventriloquist, mm-hmm. and he performed very rarely, actually. Uh, so he never was in the theater as a performer, but came from a father who was... Um, he was a true collector at heart, okay. and his enthusiasm stemmed from acquiring new pieces and uh, keeping extensive written archives and then following 
the careers of all the ventriloquists at the time. Well, I'm kind of glad to hear that in a way because I I just had this vision when I was uh, researching and, and getting ready to talk to you that here's some poor guy that his mom and dad wanted him to be a, a traditional Shakespearean stage actor, and he ended up doing something quite different. It would be like if my parents had named me, I don't know, Johnny Unitas Nickel, and <laughs> I got interested in bowling, you know. Right, it's right. It just, I don't know why my mind jumped to that space, but it did. Um, and you say he performed rarely and was a collector in every sense, and that's also interesting. Do you know how he got interested in ventriloquism? Well, he he grew up around the theater because of his father, and he became friends with a man named Harry Lester, whose stage name was the Great Lester. Great Lester was the biggest name in ventriloquism, in American ventriloquism, in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Right. And they, uh, he would he would go see Harry Lester perform, and it was that friendship that that was part of the puzzle piece. Um, what was one of the puzzle pieces. Another one was that he was on a business trip in New York in 1910, and he saw a little dummy sitting in a store window. Mm-hmm. And he thought that was a, a cute novelty, a great souvenir to bring home from his trip. So he bought that and brought it home. And, and that that dummy, Tommy Baloney, is the first one in our collection. Um, but I think Mr. Berger was going to collect something. He just had that personality. He had other sub-collections here as well. He was very interested in magic um, and some other things and had had some um, smaller collections, but the, the ventriloquism collection really took off. So when you say magic, I mean, that's another um, kind of a lone performer or a magician will sometimes have an assistant or two. Um, but another thing that traditionally like ventriloquism is done on stage and so i i think there's a thread in there somewhere of um maybe instead of his parents wanting him to be a successful performer maybe that was something he he grew up with on his own so it looks like lisa there were lots of other people who liked to collect um ventriloquist figures and other stuff that was related to that art tell us about some of those folks and the contemporaries of Mr. Berger and his collecting. Okay. Um, it, it is true that uh, Venhaven is the only public museum dedicated to ventriloquism, but there are many private collectors who have very impressive collections. Uh, Mr. Berger was fortunate in that he was collecting um, in the 20th century, early 20th century, when a lot of people couldn't afford to do that, mm-hmm. um, so he did get the lion's share of the of the best pieces from the 20th century. Um, there are, though, many people who collect now. Um, some of them are just interested in accumulation, just the sheer number of, <clears throat> of dummies. But others truly appreciate the history of the dummies and the the provenance and the ventriloquists who use them if they're collecting older pieces. The historian. An appraiser that we use for our pieces probably has the most impressive private collection that I've ever heard of. Um, he's a lot like Mr. Berger in that he is interested in gaining 
information and doing extensive research and keeping accurate records. Uh, his name is Tom Latchaw. He actually moved to the area to be near the museum. Well, that's he, yeah. He's so devoted to it. Yeah, I was going to say that's that's devotion to to a collection right there. And you know, it's interesting that you talk about people who just want to own a whole bunch of figures versus the ones who are, um, you know, thoughtful about it. And that's something we talk about on this program quite a bit. Isn't just, you know, if you have a big pile of like items. It's sort of a collection, but if you have um, a big pile of things that are curated, documented, certified, insured, that's a real collection right there. Right, right. So I'm old enough to remember Sherry Lewis, and um, I'm thinking about some of the contemporary uh, ventriloquists, and I couldn't think of many when I was getting ready for the show. Um, I, and the main one lately that I thought of was, uh, a character on Arrested Development, Joe Bluth, who was a, uh, a magician and right. he had his, um, his ventriloquist dummy's name was Franklin, but uh-huh. you know, lately that's the only one I've, I've come across. Are there still, I guess for lack of a better word, mainstream performers who do this kind of entertaining? There are, there are. Like like a lot of other types of entertainment, ventriloquism has had its ebbs and tides, but there's, you know, throughout the 20th century there, and, and into today, there's been at least one name at a time that has been really big and, and very well-known in the general public. So when, when tourists come here, their demographic oftentimes will determine which ventriloquist they're going to be familiar with. So mm-hmm. starting with Edgar Bergen, and then moving forward in time, the biggest names would probably be Edgar Bergen, and then Senior Wences, Paul Winchell, uh, Jimmy Nelson, Sherry Lewis, Willie Tyler, Jay Johnson, Terry Fader, and Jeff Dunham. Jeff is probably the most well-known of of everyone who's performing today because he's been building a fan base for decades. Wow! Um, last year, he actually finished a world tour. And his characters are incredibly popular and diverse. He's got uh, Peanut, Walter, and Ahmed the Dead Terrorist. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's a very great character. That's he's terrific. Currently, yeah, he's currently in Las Vegas. And uh, Terry Fader, who won America's Got Talent in 2007, is also has a, a show in, in Las Vegas. Oh, that's and excellent. Then, in addition to that, um, Jay Johnson, who was a cast member... Uh, on the TV show Soap in the 1970s. Oh, sure. He was a ventriloquist on Soap. He won a Tony Award in 2007 for his one-man show on Broadway. So, wow. And the DVD for that show, uh, it's called The Two and Only, that was just released last month. So there's still quite a few people who are doing it professionally. Um, and at our convention that we have, there's, you know, there's hundreds of people who come, and a lot of those are paraprofessionals. that may, They might not be doing it completely as a living, but they are making money um, at it, you know, doing um, corporate shows and um, whatever other kinds of venues they might be interested in. That's excellent because, um, you know, I, I'm not, I guess, plugged into the ventriloquist community like like maybe I should be, but um, I'm glad to hear that it's still an art that people are participating in and mm-hmm. and enjoying it. And I was looking through your website and 
I was curious about the artists. There's people who are devoted to um, making these these dummies, and I hate calling them dummies. I'd rather call them something else, but uh, figures or puppets. Um, are they, as a group of artists, are they tuned into the collectible marketplace, or are they doing these jobs as a custom job for a performer? How how do they do their work? Well, they're... At our convention every year, we, we do have some two dealers' rooms, and people who make dummies and puppets will come and sell there. And then there are, you know, there's there's probably, I don't know, um, a dozen to 20 maybe, maybe a dozen to two dozen um, figure makers that you can find online who do custom work. Um, of course, there's always going to be mass production of puppets mm-hmm. um, that are meant mostly for children. You know, and then maybe church programs and things like that. There are people, there are companies that manufacture just puppets, but there are still a lot of people who make custom puppets and dummies, um, and they they range in as far as what their purpose are. I don't think anyone's building puppets to say or dummies today to say, oh, this is a, going to be a collectible. But some of them surely will be because of the quality, um, both the new dummies and the collectible ones, the older ones, they range widely in price. Of course, you know, with any collectible, you've got factors that influence the value of them to collectors like condition and provenance and rarity. But the new ones, price is usually determined by the complexity of the dummy, how many features it has, how long it takes to produce, and the types of materials that are used to make it. Right. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that there aren't mass-produced so-called collectible ventriloquist dummies because um, I know that there are plenty of people who collect things that are manufactured and marketed as collectibles, but um, I also know that there are a lot of people who have dropped a lot of money on those thinking that they're investments, and I guess I just prefer that they be collectible because they're collectible and not because somebody said, we're going to make a collectible, you know, the ventriloquist dummy of the month club or something like that. Right, so, right. And you've mentioned your convention, and it sounds like fun. Let's let's talk about that. You have an annual convention at your museum. We do. The first convention that Ben Haven sponsored was in 1975. And uh, now the convention has grown to include over 600 ventriloquists from around the world. I think we had... 15 or 16 different countries at la- represented at last year's convention. Um, if there's a, we meet at, the, at a local hotel, and everyone comes and stays for three and a half days. It's always held in July. Um, like I said, we had about 600 come to last year's convention. Uh, the typical convention has workshops and lectures and shows, um, open mics, dealers' rooms, what you would expect. It's very, very friendly. And it's appropriate for anyone interested in ventriloquism. It's, it's family-friendly. We've got classes that we teach, um, a, a set called the Junior Vent University for kids who are under 18 to learn and to get better at it. Then sometimes people, though, are interested, but they really just want to see a performance. So we have a, we have a show the day that our convention ends, and it's for the general public who are just interested in maybe seeing a professional ventriloquist perform. That event's called Double Talk. That's also family-friendly, and it features professional ventriloquists, but it's just the one the one show. Um, our convention this year is going to be July 15th through the 18th, and the public show that we're offering is on July 19th. 
And to learn more about that, we go to your website. Tell us what your website address is. Sure. The website is uh, www.venthavenmuseum.com, and there are links there to the convention and to get convention information and to Double Talk or show that information for that. For people who want to tour the museum, uh, we are open May 1st through September 30th, mm-hmm. and all the tours that we give are guided, and they are by appointment only. So if someone's traveling through the Cincinnati area between May and September, if they call me a couple days in advance, then I can set up a tour for them to come. And it looks like fun, and your website is is just so well done. I'm Thank sitting you. here listening about the convention, and I've got this this vision in my head of like two dozen ventriloquists go to dinner together, <laughs> and and waiting on them would be, you know, crazy. They're drinking water while the dummy talks to them, and <laughs> I just that just uh, I don't know why my head went there, but there it went. And, right. Um, well, it, when the when the press comes out to the convention, because we of course we get a lot of press coverage for it, they a lot of times will contrive those types of shots, you know, and say, oh, we want to have dummies with the ventriloquists at the tables and all that, and they do that kind of stuff, and it's really cute. Um, most of them don't, you know, they don't do that, but it's it's a neat photo opportunity, I suppose. Yeah, it it does sound like fun, and um, I guess you know you've got all these people who show up for the convention. It sounds like maybe. This is a very lively, collectible hobby. Is that your opinion? Yes, it is. It's a lot of fun. Now, you know, some people who come here, um, they're not interested in collecting. They just want to be good performers. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, room for everybody here. We've got people who are just beginning in ventriloquism and don't care about history or collecting. They just want to, you know, learn how to write a show or, or perform. And then we do have some who are who come and want are more interested in the history of the art form and and uh, you know, keeping people educated about the legends in the in the ventriloquial community. Well, like I said at the beginning, so many of the best collections end up in museums, and this is certainly an example of that. Now, you're located in Fort Mitchell, Kentucky, and Lisa, give us your website one more time. Sure, it's www.venthavenmuseum.com. And Fort Mitchell is a uh, Fort Mitchell, Kentucky, is basically a suburb of Cincinnati, Ohio. So oh. we're we are right south of Cincinnati. I've been uh, in that part of the world and found out that the Cincinnati airport is in Kentucky. That is correct. Which made no sense to me, but <laughs> anyway, um, Lisa Sweezy, the curator and director of the Vent Haven Museum. I want to thank you for making time for us here on the Collector Show today. Sure, I was glad to, to talk with you. I really appreciate your call. One more quick word, and we'll be back after this, here on The Collector Show with Harold Nickel. Well, Lisa was so nice to talk to, and one of the things that you didn't hear on the program was that um, there were several interruptions while I was trying to talk to her, and I had to kind of try to edit around those, and she was very patient and a very good sport, and I appreciate that a great deal. And as I thought about, you know, what I mentioned when I was talking to her, what that thread that ran through everything might be. Those kinds of performances with ventriloquism and magic are very solitary kinds of performance. And what I mean by that is that when you're practicing, rehearsing, and learning that trade, there's nobody else around. And that seemed kind of 
sad in a way, particularly uh, when I think about how isolated people are now, even with all of the technology and communications vehicles that we have, what a solitary pursuit that must have been for somebody 50, 60, 100 years ago. I would not be doing a very good job here if I didn't also speak to you about the Life360 app. Earlier this week, I was watching the news, and I saw that this man who had been trapped in uh, the grocery store in France that was attacked by terrorists, he was using his cell phone to text the police, and that's handy, but had he been incapacitated in some other way, he might not have been able to communicate and might not have been set free and certainly wouldn't have been able to be in touch with law enforcement. It's not saying a whole lot to anybody who watches the news regularly that the world is a dangerous place. So if you have the Life360 app on your cell phone, whether you're trapped someplace or trying to communicate when you're incapacitated, you can do that. And it's good for more pedestrian things like the kids knowing where you are if you're supposed to pick them up or you knowing where the kids are when they don't show up on time. And I've talked often about the time I had to drive through Hurricane Sandy and I had to phone my wife when I got to my office. The Life360 app lets you keep track and keep up with your loved ones. It's non-intrusive. It's very handy and the price is right. You can get it on Google+. Plus. You can get it from iTunes. You can get it from the Android app store. I don't have an Android, so I'm not as conversant in that as I am in um, with iTunes and Apple. But go get it, download it, and put the information for your family and friends on it, and you'll have one less thing to worry about. And that's a very good thing. And speaking of other good things, next week on The Collector Show, we are going to be talking with the National Funeral Home Museum and a collection that started with an individual who was remodeling funeral homes and felt that the science and technology behind that craft needed to be preserved. It's a very interesting interview, and I know you'll want to come back for that, just like you did for this. Thanks for listening. Please tell your friends. Visit the website, collectorshow.net, and remember to click that flea market app that's there on uh, my Web Talk Radio page. Thanks again. See you next week. Bye for now.